Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfields Managing Risk in Asia podcast. In this series, we bring together experts across a range of subject areas to share forward-looking insights on key risk areas for businesses investing in Asia and for Asian investors. My name is Lynette Dodu, and I'm a partner in Freshfields Asia Antitrust Practice. In this episode, we will discuss the regulatory climate against a backdrop of recent policies especially Biden's executive order on outbound investment restrictions, so-called reverse CFIUS. As we unpack the nuances around these policies, we will explore the implications for investors, how they are adapting, and the strategic moves companies are adopting in response. I'm joined by four of my partners based in Freshfields offices in the US and Asia to provide up-to-the-minute trends and developments they're observing in these markets. Eamon Murr is a partner in our Washington office, where he leads the firm's CFIUS practice after having managed the CFIUS process for many years while at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Hello. Jonathan Joe, who's a partner in our New York office, who focuses on complex domestic and cross-border M&A and other corporate and financial transactions. Hi, everyone. Next, we have Alan Wang, based in our Shanghai and Beijing offices, Alan has over 20 years of experience advising on cross-border M&A, joint ventures, private equity, and corporate restructuring in China, and is regarded as a go-to advisor for China outbound transactions. Hello, everyone. Last but not least, we have Arun Balasubramanian, a partner based in Singapore and Hong Kong, who advises on corporate securities and investigations matters in Southeast and South Asia. Hello, everyone. Eamon, tell us more on the regulatory climate for inbound and outbound investments relating to Asian companies, especially China-related ones. What's top of mind for CFIUS? What's your take on the so-called reverse CFIUS regime for outbound investment that many in the industry have feared? The Biden administration has pressed forward with the evolution of the CFIUS process, reinforcing the need for parties to assess their CFIUS risk on a continual basis. A year ago, President Biden issued an executive order formally describing some of the key issues driving CFIUS reviews these days. Among those issues, that China is the leading driver of CFIUS scrutiny, including where the transaction doesn't itself actually involve a Chinese investor, a focus on supply chains and a broad range of critical capabilities, not just in the defense-related space, focus on technologies of the future, even when there's no current apparent military application, focus on cybersecurity risk and sensitive data. And in addition to laying out the types of factors that CFIUS thinks about, CFIUS has also in the past year put out enforcement guidelines reflecting a stepped up intent to identify companies that are seeking to evade the CFIUS process or that are failing to comply with their mitigation agreements. And finally, CFIUS infrastructure has grown substantially. CFIUS now has the resources to dig deeper into a broader range of transactions and to take action with respect to smaller and smaller risks. At the same time, the Biden administration has been looking to shore up other areas of perceived vulnerability in the geostrategic competition with China, in particular in connection with U.S. investment in China or outbound investment. If the outbound investment executive order that the president issued this past summer goes into effect, it will clearly impact semiconductor investment that's occurring in China from the United States, as well as investment in quantum computing to the extent that there is any investment these days in that area in China from the United States, and AI, but to more limited degree. 
And these are the three technology areas that the executive order and the anticipated rules will cover. But it's not exactly a reverse CFIUS. Unlike CFIUS, it's country-specific, currently just to China and including Hong Kong. It's tied to the three specific technology areas that I mentioned, and it's more binary. Transactions are either prohibited or permitted, with some of the permitted ones being subject to notification with no governmental authority to block the transactions. But it will reach a broad range of U.S. investors, including VC firms, PE firms, and strategics. It's ostensibly focused on investments that come with some management or technical expertise, so it purports to exclude purely passive investments, though there are some qualifications in the anticipated rules with respect to what types of investments qualify as passive investments. Thus far, the administration has only put out a framework for regime, but the implementing rules haven't been written yet. There are a number of areas of ambiguity in these rules, and it's too soon to say how much the final rules will vary from the framework that's been proposed. There have also been advocates in Congress for separate legislation to address outbound investment risk, but that seems at this point relatively unlikely to proceed in the foreseeable future. At the same time, while there's a reasonable likelihood that the rules to implement the president's executive order will be issued and become sometime effective next year, it still remains possible that implementation, even of the president's executive order, may be delayed indefinitely due to other priorities. Thank you, Payman. As we are seeing a tightening of foreign investment rules in the U.S., we're also seeing an expansion of foreign investment screening regimes across Europe and more developed economies in Asia. Scrutiny of foreign investment on national security grounds has likewise tightened. Alongside foreign investment, we're also seeing antitrust authorities becoming increasingly interventionist, widening the scope for intervention and exploring new theories of harm all of which is making for an uncertain regulatory environment. Jonathan, let me turn to you next to provide a US M&A perspective on the evolving foreign investment screening landscape. How are businesses in the US interpreting US policy developments in particular, and how is this impacting investment decisions in relation to China and generally across Asia? When we talk about Asia, obviously, it's a very diverse geographic region. We can roughly divide it into China and ex-China. Let's talk about China first. I think the issue with China is not a recent one, even though there are rules that you just mentioned, exact order, stuff like that. The geopolitical tension between China and the West, uh, especially the U.S., and the supply chain issues that arose during the pandemic have already caused U.S. businesses to rethink or just try to think through what their China strategy should be. So that's a long process in the making. And I think it's the recent executive order uh, itself doesn't change that. The area is subject to the restriction, more difficult for U.S. clients to do in China, mainly semiconductor sector. But I'm, I'm not aware of, of anyone that's already doing that you know, in China. I recall in 2018, we were advising a semiconductor client as they were thinking about setting up a joint venture in China. They were talking with a few cities and try to get the best incentives they can get from the, the government in those cities. And the discussion were very well underway when suddenly they realized the changing political climate and very quickly changed course and that investment never happened. So I think even before they, that reverse Sophia's executive order was in, in place, people were very aware of these political and geopolitical tensions. But outside of that area, you know, in terms of our clients in the industrial, financial services, pharma, and tech sectors in general, they're still quite interested in China. And um, they still want to explore 
ways to do business there or even expand there. So I think from that perspective, there are still broad interests. The private equity funds are now obviously more careful because they, they want to make sure that their, their investment activities in Asia will not run afoul of some of the new restrictions under this reverse CFIUS rules. So that's with China. Um, outside of China, I think the story is actually quite positive. There are still a lot of interest to invest in Asia, especially in places like Japan and India. The investor sentiment is very positive, and we, we do expect to see a more cross-border deals in those jurisdictions by various U.S. clients. And I think that trend is, is going to continue. Jonathan, while these regulatory and geopolitical factors are influencing U.S. investment patterns, they also have broader implications for Chinese and other Asian companies expanding globally. I'd like to bring you, Alan, into the conversation before turning to Arun. How are you, Alan, seeing these factors impact deal flows in and out of China? I may begin by saying that people may have noticed that the new catchphrase being used in Washington, Brussels these days is de-risking rather than decoupling. It's not quite clear what de-risking from China really means, though it seems to be focused on diversification of supply chains, especially when it comes to critical materials, uh, ring-fencing certain critical technologies, you know, the so-called small yard, tall fence approach. These days, I think the boardrooms of most Western companies often have to deal with the question of whether they have a China de-risking strategy. So many of them feel compelled to develop a strategy such as ring-fencing the China business, doing a spin-off listing, having a China plus one model, or even to leave the China market altogether. But reality, we have seen very few companies who actually are implementing it in an effective way. I guess these so-called de-risking plans are very difficult to implement for various reasons, be it political, be it logistics or supply chain related, or simply just not very economically viable. But international peace sponsors, what we find, have been quite spooked by the geopolitical concerns. China-focused fundraising from North American investors has become far more difficult as many US LPs now you know, actively demand that GPs cut their China exposure and the long list of Chinese companies and sectors subject to US sanctions and the reverse CFIUS executive order that Eamon had just mentioned are um, causing major compliance headaches for fund managers. So this kind of developments can really make people that run these funds very concerned. But notably, the, the, the void that's left by Western financial investors is now being filled by Chinese domestic PE funds, and many of them have state backing and also funding from places such as the Middle East. The Saudis, Qataris, UAE have all recently ramped up their portfolios in China. And it's also interesting to note that European multinationals, particularly German corporates, have very significant exposure to the China market, particularly in sectors such as automobiles and chemicals. And we've seen them actually doubling down on expanding their presence in China rather than reducing it. And finally, in terms of Chinese outbound investment, obviously the very stringent foreign investment screening regimes in the US, Europe, and places like Australia and Canada have resulted in big declines in Chinese capital flows to the West. But China continues to run very big trade surpluses and it's got $3 trillion of reserves. So it's got no choice really but to invest offshore. Parking this money in U.S. Treasury bills used to be seen as a very safe option, 
but that's no longer seen as a good idea. And China actually does have a goal to de-dollarize in the long term. So we continue to see strong momentum for outbound investment with really hot destinations being the ASEAN countries, the Middle East, um, Latin America. A lot of these investments are in support of the Belt and Road Initiative with a focus on infrastructure and resource projects. Supply chain shifts are also driving many Chinese manufacturers to invest abroad in places like Vietnam and Mexico in order to get around the U.S. tariffs. But right now, one of the hottest places we're seeing Chinese money flowing into is Indonesia, where there's a scramble by Chinese investors to secure critical minerals such as nickel you know, that are essential for the electric vehicle industry. And we expect this trend to similarly play out in Latin America countries as well, such as Chile and Peru, where they have similar rich mineral deposits as well. Thanks very much, Alan. Irene, I'd like to turn to you next, particularly focusing on a point Alan made around the ramping up of investment into Southern and Southeast Asia. Are you also witnessing a similar trend from your clients? Is there a so-called China plus one strategy that you are seeing at the moment? The China plus one strategy, and indeed that buzzword, gained traction during the pandemic when widespread lockdowns in China disrupted essential supply chains and prompted manufacturers in particular to consider strategies for supply chain diversification. And we have seen the impacts of that in Southeast Asia and South Asia, in particular with a view to our clients seeking to establish alternative supply chains, alternative manufacturing facilities in places such as Vietnam and India. India in particular has been keen to attract global manufacturing through its Make in India initiative, which is accompanied by various financial and tax incentives. Now, early successes there include Apple moving part of its iPhone 15 manufacturing to India, and interestingly, persuading the Indian government to relax a number of foreign investment restrictions for several of Apple's Chinese suppliers. Vietnam has been another major beneficiary of this China plus one strategy. A further development is Chinese businesses re-domiciling or moving significant shareholdings to Singapore in the hope that investment activity will not be caught by foreign investment restrictions targeting at China-owned businesses. Finally, financial sponsor activity, particularly from U.S. private equity houses, in Southeast Asia and India has increased considerably, driven in part by current concerns over investment in China. Arun, Alan and Jonathan touched on the importance of deal structuring in the current climate. Could you give an example of alternative structures that you have considered with your clients, particularly in light of the tightening or toughening of the climate? Ninette, going back to your comment earlier in this conversation about CFIUS-type regimes in Asian jurisdictions, about five years ago, India implemented what was called Press Note 3, which was, on the face of it, uh, intended to require prior governmental approval in India for investments from neighboring countries. But in reality, it was targeted at Chinese investment into India. It did have the effect of chilling investment quite substantially, but 
there were a few major Chinese investors who were able to structure around these restrictions through the use of various types of structured instruments. So that was one example where these Presno 3 restrictions were in effectively complied with, while also giving the Chinese investor a way to put further money into India. In terms of what we're seeing in China investment deals these days, uh, what we find it's now very common to see um, exit clauses built into transaction documents. It's often in the form of a put option that's triggered by compliance or reputational events. And these put options are exercisable at the investor's sole discretion, but often can only be exercised for a nominal price. We're also seeing many multinational clients that are looking at various ways or more innovative ways to uh, repatriate cash out of China. For example, many of them are exploring the use of upstream loans from their China subsidiaries to the US parent as a way to extract cash out of the country. And this is in addition to you know, some of the more traditional methods such as dividends, royalties, service fees, etc. But it should be noted that I think it's becoming increasingly apparent to many foreign investors that decoupling from China in the tech space is not necessarily always to the advantage of Western companies. And the reality is that China is now also a leader in our many technological areas that will shape the future. And these include renewable energy, electric vehicles, battery technology, telecommunication, etc. So in some areas, technological collaboration with Chinese companies is actually quite essential. One good example is the reported deal between the Chinese battery maker CATL and Ford to produce EV batteries in Michigan. Instead of CATL making equity investment in the battery plant, um, which would have run into all sorts of political hurdles in the US, they instead opted for a licensing arrangement to access CATL's technology. And we're also seeing licensing deals in the biotech space. For example, new cancer drugs developed in China are being licensed to Western pharma companies for manufacturing and distribution in the US and in Europe. Let me talk about the US, the CFIUS regime. So from a deal-making perspective, the CFIUS regime is a very difficult regime to structure around given the CFIUS expensive jurisdiction and the detailed questionnaire that will go up the ownership chain all the way to the uh, ultimate owner and the arrangement relating to the ownership and even LPs in funds. So if, from my experience, I find it very hard to really structure around CFIUS. Sometimes people will do true minority investment, you know, less than 5% with the hope that, you know, it won't really be a problem. And oftentimes I see people giving up board seats just in order to not have that additional control indicia that could give rise to CFIUS issues. Those are really the types of things we see in the U.S. Uh, relating to CFIUS. Outside of that, I, I think structure solutions are pretty uh, unlikely. And Eamon, how are you seeing clients seek to manage CFIUS risk? To the point that Jonathan made earlier, it is fairly difficult to structure around the CFIUS process. And what that means in practice then is that the CFIUS consideration goes to pretty fundamental questions of transaction selection of a transaction form and so on. So for example, as Alan mentioned, companies may pursue just licensing of technology to avoid CFIUS jurisdiction because in the context of CFIUS, there has to be an acquisition of a US business. So if all the foreign person is doing is licensing technology, that wouldn't be considered an acquisition of a US business 
and that may not trigger CFIUS review, it still may trigger political scrutiny. And that's sort of a reality that companies are having to think about both the technical regulatory jurisdictional issues, as well as the political issues, which in and of themselves can and ca cause significant uh, turbulence transactions. Companies are also pursuing pure greenfield transactions, which also aren't subject to CFIUS with the exception of acquisition of real estate in certain areas, which depending upon proximity to sensitive military facilities can be subject to CFIUS review, even if greenfield. And then as Jonathan mentioned, companies are looking to make purely passive investments in technologies or in areas uh, where they see potential future opportunity. But in addition to differing, different transaction forms, as I mentioned, companies are being more careful about the targets that they're selecting. Obviously, semiconductors or other cutting-edge technology areas will be more sensitive than, for example, investments in the retail space. But even biotech, which up until now had not been subject to the same degree of scrutiny as semiconductors, is expected to become subject to a much greater degree of scrutiny going forward. And then sort of the last area that I've, I've seen companies try to manage their CFIUS risk is through carve-outs. So there, they're not looking to acquire the U.S. component of a global company, but instead are wanting to make sure that their foreign-to-foreign -foreign transaction doesn't get caught up in the CFIUS process. And so they'll look for ways to carve out the U.S assets from the target company. In practice, that can be fairly challenging because there are often interconnections that are hard to identify until you get down to the operational level well after some of the initial planning or strategic decision-making in terms of pursuing a target is done. But that is something that we see from time to time in order to ensure that CFIUS jurisdiction doesn't create uh, challenges to transactions where the, the main value or the main assets of the target are outside the United States. Many thanks for sharing those insights on some of the deal structures you are seeing currently in the existing regulatory environment. Shifting tack and looking ahead to 2024, what are the areas to watch in terms of regulatory developments? And I'll ask that question to you, Eamon. And I'd also like to hear from M&A colleagues as well on how these developments are likely to further shape global investment trends. I think we'll see the United States continue to engage more extensively with other countries that are like-minded to try to ensure that U.S. companies are not disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis their foreign counterparts or competitors, also to build up the sort of robustness of the global regime to address these types of concerns, which has been an important priority for the U.S. government. And we'll see that in inbound investment issues. We'll see an outbound investment for sure, as well as with export controls. On the U.S. side, we'll also see increased CFIUS enforcement, almost undoubtedly, and all this together will continue to make for a more complex investment environment. Yeah, in, in the U.S., I think an interesting area to watch is really what's happening. I think Annette, you alluded to it earlier. I think there have been a lot of developments in the antitrust area. I think U.S. antitrust regulators are really ramping up and going out and, and challenging deals as well as putting together some policy changes that will make, for example, HSR filing more cumbersome, you know, more similar to an EC or UK filing in terms of the timing and the details they require. And they put out a merger guideline that spell out their thinking, just put companies on notice. 
So all these developments means that if those policy changes are put in effect next year, it will make deal making for U.S. strategic players more difficult. At least it will extend the timeline that will be required to complete M&A transactions for strategic players or even P, for PE funds. So that gives opportunity for a foreign player who doesn't have the same antitrust concern, but may have a CFIUS concern because in the past, when you have a CFIUS concern, that typically would just put you at a, a severe disadvantage to a U.S. player who does not have that kind of concern. But now, I think, at least from a timing perspective, there seems to be a leveling of the play field for the U.S. strategics and foreign strategics. And I say that I, I don't think China will benefit from this because the, the serious risk for Chinese companies are just a whole different level. Mainly, I'm thinking about you know investors from Japan, South Korea, Singapore. I think there is a real opportunity that they can take advantage of the slowdown in the domestic bidders timeline to try to gain at least a leveling playing field with those players in auction. And in China, I think the number one priority is to address the slowing growth of the economy. So we should expect the Chinese government to make more effort to attract foreign investment. One notable change is that the government is trying to tone down you know, the enforcement of some of the national security focused regulations, such as the anti-espionage law and the cross-border data transfer rules, so as to reassure foreign investors that these rules will not be arbitrarily applied against them. We also expect to see more concrete stimulus measures by the Chinese government to bolster the economy uh, with more government funding going to some critical technology areas, such as semiconductors and AI, in order to enhance technological self-reliance. And externally, how the U.S. Fed's interest rate policy, I think, will also have a significant impact on the extent that this domestic stimulus that the Chinese government will adopt and also the amount of global capital flow that may come into China. But what much of what China will do, I think, will also depend on the global situation. There are a number of major unpredictable factors, including the U.S. presidential election campaign, how the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israel-Palestinian conflict pans out and the impact of these events on geopolitics and commodity prices. We may also see trade tension potentially rising between China and the EU, with the latter having launched the anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electric vehicle exports. And if we see more of so the escalation of Western export controls on high-tech products in China, then we may expect to see the Chinese government sort of taking reciprocal action in stepping up enforcement of export restrictions of certain upstream materials that are critical to the high-tech industry in the West. In the past year, we did see China announcing export controls over some critical minerals such as gallium, germanium, graphite, etc. But so far, enforcement of these measures have been rather muted as these have been I think were more sort of likely intended to be used as bargaining chips in future negotiations with the US and its allies. And finally, I think one aspect of China's toolbox that could be quite potent in sort of striking back against Western restrictions on Chinese companies is that China may more aggressively merge the control regime, which it has indeed used in the past to thwart some major cross-border M&A transactions, for example, in the semiconductor sector, as we saw earlier this year, that Intel had to abandon its planned 5.4 billion 
dollar acquisition of tower semiconductors after they failed to secure Chinese merger clearance. I expect we will see increased economic cooperation between the U.S. and India in particular as a counterweight to China in an election year in both countries. And for this to be manifested by investment cooperation in sensitive sectors such as defense, semiconductor technology and manufacturing and possibly AI. Thank you very much, Run, Alan. Ayman and Jonathan, this has been a very insightful discussion and a timely reminder that it remains important to look at the regulatory environment holistically when making investment decisions and thinking about strategy. It's also important to remain nimble, as I'm hearing you all suggest, so as to adjust to short and medium term factors in this dynamic and evolving environment. Early planning and assessment of regulatory requirements remains critical to anticipate regulatory timetables and outcomes. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for listening in to this episode in our Managing Risk in Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please email us using the links in the description. We hope you'll join us again next time.